Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm Kirk O'Bear. Hey, you may have heard in the news earlier this week that there was a uh, federal judge that struck down a provision in federal law that relates to possession of firearms. And as you probably know, there are a number of factors that under federal law render somebody ineligible to possess a firearm, receive a firearm, uh, buy a firearm, etc. Et and it's broken down into different levels. But one of the categories that's been law for many, many years is this concept of when someone is, quote unquote, under indictment for a felony level offense. So this is someone who has not been convicted of a felony, but has pending charges that have proceeded to the point where there is presumably some finding of probable cause that allows the case to go forward past just the initial charging phase. So that term under indictment is something that is under federal law technically means if there had been an indictment issued by a grand jury uh, or the functional equivalent, meaning that somebody could have gone past the preliminary hearing phase if a criminal complaint was issued rather than an indictment. So there's a provision that one may not receive firearms if they are quote unquote under indictment for a felony charge. And the federal court judge, this is you know not binding anywhere except in that particular district, uh, did find that that pro particular provision is uh, unconstitutional, which is interesting because this came from a federal court, not a state court. Uh, we have seen a lot of state court opinions that are uh, different from the federal provisions, including a in Wisconsin, a state court case that went all the way to the Supreme Court earlier this year, dealing with whether or not a disorderly conduct uh, charge uh, in any capacity as long as it's a misdemeanor, it does not qualify in Wisconsin anymore as a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence. And in past practice, prior to this decision, the way it would work is that the ATF, the federal authorities, would go through and kind of scour through criminal complaints that had been issued and are a matter of public record and would find f facts in the complaint that, in their opinion, uh, warranted uh, a designation that something is a crime of domestic violence. So that could be based on the relationship of the people that are named in the complaint, what exactly was alleged, and sort of a, a subjective interpretation. But because of the, the actual technical nature of how disorderly conduct is treated, at least in Wisconsin, um, it can include a broad number of different behaviors, all of which constitute disorderly conduct. And it's one of those odd statutes that says loud, uh, obscene, boisterous. Uh, and then it, at the end it says, or otherwise disorderly conduct. So the fact that it's so broad and that there's nothing, at least with regard to the elements or the pleading of a case that indicates whether it is or isn't, a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, there is this uh, theory out there, and, and it's been found in a Supreme Court case in Wisconsin that you cannot count that as something that is a disqualifying factor. So 
now we're talking about something different, which is uh, when somebody has pending felony charges that have gone past that initial phase and there's been some sort of finding of probable cause, federal law says that a person cannot receive firearms uh, under that circumstance. So this is one of you know many cases that have been brewing out there that have been challenging the overall uh, federal statutory structure. And it's a very interesting issue because it's something that had not really been given much attention uh, in the higher courts for many, many years. These are provisions that have been around for a very long time. And the overall issue is that we're seeing more and more examples of when there's a federal provision that does not adequately account for the nuances of state law and where it runs contrary to or if it's arbitrary or if it if it's not applied in such a way that it gives you know fair notice i suppose to someone who might be in that situation um we're seeing a lot of cases where there's been findings that it's not applicable but the big issue that's still kind of looming out there and will hit the U.S. Supreme Court sometime very soon is this notion of whether or not the federal government has the right to basically adopt state law and state law determinations as to what a felony is or isn't. And then dovetailing, or I guess, um, you know, riding on the coattails of that determination, making it an automatic uh ineligibility for firearm possession. And this has to do basically with um, whether the federal government can usurp or basically take over that determination based on something that happened in state court. And I think the best example, or I'll give you a couple examples of this, where it really kind of makes no sense is that over the years, we've had more and more cases, more and more laws that have, because of legislative action have converted things that used to be misdemeanors are now felonies um, or creating new felonies that are based on, you know, basically just creating a new law that makes something a felony. You know, for example, if you happen to write a bad check and if it's determined that you either knew or should have known that that bank account didn't have sufficient funds um, and, you know, as a knowledge element, technically, if you were to write a check knowing that it would bounce, that could be charged as a felony and then you could lose your firearm possession rights. In Wisconsin and I think practically every state, yeah, it's got to be every state at a certain level of offense for repeat drunk driving um, behavior it can reach a felony level. You know, New York, it's the second offense where someone is then a felon. And the issue then becomes, uh, you know, just for example, a second offense, drunk driving in New York, felony. Second offense in Wisconsin, a relatively minor misdemeanor. So somebody in New York that gets a second offense, drunk driving is then ineligible to possess a firearm. Somebody in Wisconsin can continue to possess a firearm. So you see the issue here. It's it's the federal government um, utilizing state law provisions that are not related to the regulation of the possession of firearms. 
in that disparity, I think, points it out right there, is that what is the federal interest in just having an arbitrary designation that being a felon, for whatever, for whatever reason, automatically puts one in that category? Is it, is it arbitrary? Is it something that is not uh, by function of federal law? And, you know, there's the argument that if someone's convicted in federal court of a felony under federal charges and the federal possession statutes that relate to all that, you know, fine. But the problem is it's extending to people that have convictions in state court. Um, So anyway, it's just interesting that for years and years, this issue kind of was dormant. And um, it's percolating up through the uh, system. And it's anticipated that there's going to be some pretty significant changes in how these um, laws are actually applied. And it goes to the bigger picture. I mean, what what do we do to have a well-regulated um, you know, firearm situation? And should it be something that the federal government has overarching authority to that affects people's lives directly, you know, whether you can or can't go hunting? or whether you can or can't defend yourself with a with a firearm legally, you know. And I, I think the big issue there is that we keep struggling with how do we do something when we see a tragedy happen where somebody that shouldn't have had a firearm ends up using it. And as we all know, um, because of the prevalence and abundance of firearms, it's a lot of those laws really don't do anything at all. Um, if somebody wants a firearm, they're going to be able to get one. So all this regulation out there that kind of limits whether somebody can or can't or makes it harder or whatever, um, it's a lot of law enforcement money and resources that are going towards something that probably doesn't have any effect whatsoever on keeping firearms out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them. So that's actually something that is gaining some traction. I'll keep you up to date on these developments as they occur. But right now we have to take a mess, uh, break to listen to some messages, and we'll be right back. Other big news this week, uh, if you were listening or watching, you probably heard that the ongoing controversy regarding the Adnan Syed case has um, now reached a level where he has been released from prison and put on house arrest after spending more than 20 years in prison on murder charges. His conviction was vacated this past Monday. Um, The only reason this case is unique is because of the amount of publicity generated by it, and frankly, partly because of this uh, podcast, Serial, that came out many years ago. And a lot of people have been paying attention to this case very closely, myself included. And the interesting thing about this is that uh, this happens a lot, that what happened in this case, which I'll get to in just a minute, uh, is something that is not uncommon. It's something that happens all too often and unfortunately is something that leads to significant problems in our legal system. But just by way of background, if you're not familiar with the case, in 1999, uh, for the former girlfriend or on-off-again 
girlfriend of Adnan Syed, her name was Heyman Lee, was murdered. And he was a suspect, but there were a lot of different aspects of this investigation. And if you listen to the podcast serial, you're probably familiar with all the ups and downs and dynamics of this um, case. But it got a lot of attention after that podcast came out because, uh, first of all, it was a a very uh, riveting um, thing to listen to just because I I understand a lot of this was maybe theatrical because of the um, public broadcast nature of the analysis of the case, but it caused many people to have significant doubts about the way that the case had occurred and whether or not Syed had, number one, actually committed this crime, and number two, uh, received a fair trial. And for years, like I said, 20 years, more than 20 years, this case has been uh, going up and down in the court system. So at one point, there had been a motion for a new trial, and that had been granted. But then the prosecutors appealed that decision and it spent several more years in a litigation status and ultimately the lower court's decision to vacate the conviction and grant Syed a new trial was reversed and that took many years for it to go through that process so it's like one of those things where he wins but then the appeal makes it so well he loses in the long run and for a while, the case remained dormant for a couple of years. And then all of a sudden, I mean, it seems all of a sudden when it relates to how the public uh, knows about these things, there was a motion to vacate the, prosec- the actual prosecution, the actual conviction by the prosecution. And uh, as of Monday, they have 30 days to decide whether they're going to proceed to a new trial or just drop the charges altogether. Bearing in mind, Syed has maintained his innocence all along. But what happened here is that uh, the original reasons why a new trial had been granted had to do with uh, what was characterized as an unfair and undue reliance upon technology that we now know to be very limited in its significance. And I mean, what I mean by that is what we call cell phone tower triangulation. And I see this a lot in cases that that I have. And the way it normally gets presented nowadays is that there are a lot of caveats. There are a lot of reasons why you shouldn't necessarily accept this as correct, because we have a better way. And I think basically defense lawyers and judges have a better understanding of the limitations on the significance of this evidence. But going back to when Syed had his original trial, as you can probably imagine, the prosecutors in the case, they were a different set of prosecutors, obviously, had uh, placed a great deal of reliance upon this cell phone triangulation data. So just a little bit of background on how that all works. There is a, as you probably know, your cell phone uh, can ping off of different cell towers. Now, this is different than GPS location data. That's an entirely separate category. And in fact, that was not at play in this case. This was not a situation where 
an actual GPS location data from the phone was utilized. This was a, a much lesser substitute for that type of um, inquiry, like where a person is. So in the cell phone world, um, and this is very complicated, but the essence of it is that when you're on your phone and you're traveling, your phone looks for um, a combination of the strongest signal and the nearest signal, but not necessarily both. And it'll hop onto a particular cell phone tower. Now, part of this goes back to the fact that this was in 1999 and cell phones worked somewhat differently back then. The point being that one could be traveling and and you've probably had it happen to you where you're on the phone and you're in your car hopefully hands-free and in the middle of a conversation you know you it gets dropped and then you get a call back or there's you know someone cuts out for a bit what's happening is your your cell phone is changing um basically towers so to speak now nowadays there's a lot more reliance upon much more stable communication means through satellites and uh, you know highly boosted cellular areas. But going back to 1999, it was much more um, well primitive. So what they did is that when someone made a call either to or from a particular phone, there was data available on which towers were being utilized for that process. And the problem being that it's not absolute or, for that matter, not even, uh, you know, probable that a particular cell phone tower being utilized means that it is close in location to where the person utilizing the phone is. Now, that was all known at the time that that this is kind of a primitive way of trying to figure out where a person was at a particular time. Uh, And, and the problem is that, you know, prosecutors basically utilized this information in such a way that it benefited their case without fully exploring or, or explaining the limitations on the significance of it. And this is kind of true when it relates to a lot of what we call forensics that get presented at trial. And again, this is one reason why a lot of people get exonerated or acquitted many, many years after a conviction, because the technology is uh, known to have had flaws and probably was known at the time, but because of the way that it's presented as a tool for the prosecution to obtain a conviction and because of the way that lawyers argue things in court to try and be persuasive and utilize those quote-unquote, facts to their advantage, um, you know, there's a whole lot of imprecision involved in the situation. So there was an acknowledgement that that was a problem. Now, the big twist in this case is there actually was a witness that claimed to have helped Syed bury the body. And this is kind of the, the thing that's out there that has caused uh, so much controversy because um, this particular witness provided very compelling evidence, which did result in a conviction. 
over the years, the problems with all of that have been um, identified, but it took a great deal of comparative work, uh, understanding how the uh, statements of this witness changed over time. Certain things that he said that turned out later were impossible, could not have been true, and could not have been chalked up to um, just a minor failure in memory, but um, an overall perception that this guy did not know what he was talking about and had, as the judge just recently noted in this hearing on Monday, an incentivized witness. So we'll talk about what that is when we come back right after these messages. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Before the break, we were talking about the Adnan Syed case and the recent ruling by the judge in Baltimore that the conviction should be vacated and the prosecution now has 30 days to determine what they want to do. Now, it was the prosecution's motion that got granted. The prosecution asked to vacate the conviction. So before the break, we were talking about the primary, really the only witness against Syed at trial was this um, fellow classmate who claims to have been interacting with Syed throughout the evening hours of the date in question. And, and just so you know, this was a high school kid, um, had been dating this girl, had broken up with her. The prosecution theory was that he was jealous and mad and that he killed her. Um, not much of a motive, but I suppose one that could be true. And strangely, even with that theory, and this is just part of what caused doubts um, during the serial podcast when it when it aired, was all the, the things that happened that day. And it's known for sure that Syed was in school, and he was late for one particular class, but there was an explanation for that. And then he was at track practice. He loaned somebody else his car. Um, he and he finished his track practice and got picked up by a friend. And uh, where it goes from there is where there's a lot of discrepancy. But um, his cell phone was noted to be in a couple of places. As we said before, there's this cell phone triangulation data that was utilized to make estimates of where he could have been. And also, another problem in the case is that that same data was used to make a timeline for if it was possible for Syed to have been in certain places at certain times. And the way that the prosecution presented the information is that by using these estimates and expanding the maximum possible period of time that someone could have been in a particular place, they were able to time it such that it was theoretically possible for Syed to have driven extremely fast with no traffic and basically no traffic signals or any other impediments and could have flown to the location where they um, fa later found the girl's body and have in a miraculously quick way buried her and then flown back uh, at a very high rate of speed with no um, 
you know, breaking the speed limit, could have gotten back to where other people knew that he was at a later time. So there was a little little gap that, on the one hand, rendered it impossible for him to have done what this other witness said, but on the other hand, theoretically, remotely possible. Um, so this witness, as the judge characterized him as an incentivized witness. So here's the thing, and it's still kind of a mystery out there. This This kid knew something about what happened because he did have some details that were able to be confirmed. However, anything that had to do with Syed himself was not consistent with the rest of the evidence. And including uh, where, when, how, a lot of different things happened, uh, even to the extent that as the process of his initial interview, then another interview, then another interview, then trial, and testimony, then another hearing, and more testimony. Very little common ground on over the course of all of this testimony that was taken. And the New York Times did a very good job of um, mapping this out and showing that the, the major differences that occurred over the course of time. Now, this is a witness that the prosecution was working with very closely. Um, so in addition to the four times officially that this witness had stated you know, what he said happened, there were perhaps you know, dozens, if not more, times when he was working with the prosecution to coordinate that testimony, you know, to make it fit more or less. And that's one reason, by the way, that statements do change over time. There's the natural reason that memories fade and someone who experiences an event and then relies upon their memory later may not get all the details right. That's natural. That happens. But when someone is identified as a witness or a suspect and the task of going through every minute detail that happened, just the process itself of trying to rely upon one's memory and, and whether or not it truly is your memory or is it the last time that you described it or is there influence from somebody that said, hey, wait, that can't be right because if that's true, then this other thing might not be true. So think about that again. And it's very easy for things to change over time, sometimes without the witness even realizing what those changes are. And it's just a function of the way that these investigations and these cases proceed. I mean, it happens in practically every case. And if you just think about it, um, someone will witness something, and then the process of reporting it oftentimes may not be accurate for any number of reasons. Perception, maybe there's impairment involved, maybe there's some mental health issue involved. But more importantly, um, that when one experiences something as it happens, there are varying levels of what you know, hits your brain, what sticks in your brain. And they've done studies on this, and it's it's kind of remarkable how fallible the, the human mind is in these situations, especially when it's something that's unexpected. You know, something happens right in front of your eyes. And you've probably heard about this, but they've done studies where they'd have, you know, 15 people observe an event that they weren't expecting that happens kind of suddenly. And then they go back and ask each person independently what happened. And you'll get 15 very different versions of events. 
uh, just because let's say you're thinking about uh, the bills you have to pay or what you're going to have for dinner that night and you're not focused or expecting something to happen. And then when it does, you know, just the way your brain was perceiving things. But on the other hand, <clears throat> if we just completely invalidated the proposal that one's witnessing of an event, the hearing, seeing, sensing of what happened isn't reliable at all, we wouldn't have any cases whatsoever because that's a lot of evidence in a lot of cases. So, I mean, there's obviously some merit to it. The problem is that we as a society and as a system probably place too much weight on that because of the fact that it's oftentimes the only evidence. And it's hard for us to accept the proposition that if the memory, if the human brain, the regular average normal human brain is that fallible as far as its perception and ability to recall events repeatedly with a variety of influences impacting it, it's scary to think that our entire system might just completely fall apart and that it would be impossible to prosecute anybody. That's a proposition that I think enters the minds of a lot of people when it comes to whether they're jurors or whether they're investigators or even lawyers involved in the case. That, okay, well, is this evidence? Yes. Is it reliable? Well, he said it happened, so I guess. And not really delving into, because it's just, it's that realm that I think uh, people are afraid to look at something and say, well, that's not, you know, that, that's not really, we don't, know uh, as much about what really happened based on what this person is saying, uh, because there's got to be more to it. So what we do instead is we rely upon inconsistencies or consistencies. I mean, there's rules of evidence that are there that are all surrounding what a person said previously. I mean, there's a, an entire category of admissibility rules that relate to a prior consistent statement or a prior inconsistent statement. And those things become admissible, even if they were hearsay, um, in order to address this particular issue, which is, you know, an eyewitness the statement. So it happens all the time. And it's built into this process. It's built into our law that people will have changes in their testimony for whatever reason. And when that happens, a previous version of that statement can be referred to. I mean, it's acknowledging the inaccuracy of the process. The rule itself acknowledges the fact that things change, do change, and will change. Um, and then there's this method by which we bring in things that were either consistent or inconsistent on a previous occasion when the same subject was being discussed. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. One thing as a side note I'd like to comment on briefly here is that um, the family of the the girl, Haymin Lee, uh, is no doubt experiencing a, a great deal of um, stress, trauma, and uh, I'm sure a sense of um, frustration that the prosecution has come forward and said that this conviction needs to be vacated. And a lot of people will blame Adnan Syed 
for that feeling as though he's getting away with something. But the reality is, as the prosecutor indicated, she completely understands this frustration and it's one shared by many people that perhaps the wrong person has been convicted here and after 20 plus years it's now in the category of an unsolved murder rather than one that for 20 plus years many people were able to tell themselves that it had been solved and that justice had been served yeah, that's a tough concept because when we, we go through this very imprecise process of trying to get it right, you know, it's, it's guaranteed that not everyone will be happy. It's just part of the process because it is that imprecise. So let me get to the point as to why this all happened. Uh, there had been an acknowledgement by the prosecutor's office in, in Baltimore that the previous um, prosecutors in the case had withheld potentially exculpatory evidence that was in possession of the police. And there basically are two other prime suspects that were known to the police and, in fact, known to the prosecution that were never revealed to the, the defense lawyer. Now, interestingly, the original trial counsel in Syed's case has since passed on, has, has died. But there had been um, issues relating to the performance of that lawyer in the trial, and the lawyer actually lost um, his law license, well, voluntarily. He surrendered it because of primarily because of um, failings in this particular case. And that has to do with the inconsistent statements and the, you know, looking into other information. And a big, big issue was that there was a witness who had been identified by the defense, by Syed himself, stating that I was at the library with this other person. And that was something known to the defense that was never explored and never presented. Um, and then for years, a lot of the litigation had to do with whether or not that was deficient performance. And, you know, looking back and saying, hey, had somebody done this differently, would there have been a different result? Um, would a jury have seen this differently? Well, first of all, who knows? How can you even do, you know, do that? Say, well, you know, we don't think a jury would have cared about this, but that happens all the time in the appellate courts. What's the alternative? I mean, I've said this before on the show if you're a regular listener, but so many of our rules of law have more to do with convenience than they do with really trying to have as good of a system as we can. What I mean by that is that if it were the, the situation where somebody could say, hey, uh, my lawyer didn't present this piece of evidence, and I think that it would have made a difference, if if the standard were, oh, yeah, you're probably right, then there'd be a lot of reversals of convictions. And our already busy, taxed system would be even more so. And we'd have to spend more taxpayer dollars to do more work and have more hearings and hire more people and have more involvement in this. But, you know, there's only a certain amount of money and effort that society is willing to put towards having 
a good justice system. And wherever that threshold is, well, sometimes it's our politicians and legislators that decide that for us. So if the police need bigger and better and faster cars, it's pretty easy to say they need that and let's do it. But if the system requires that there be more investigative support or expert support or personnel support for the defense function, it's not a very popular position to take if you were a politician. So, you know, in this situation, there were a lot of things that went wrong at the trial, but it's only just recently come to light. Um, the prosecutor failed to disclose evidence pointing to an alternative suspect and didn't disclose that one of the suspects in the original investigation had actually threatened to kill Heyman Lee very close in time to when this occurred. Now, why not, if you know that, why not just tell the defense, oh, by the way, this is something that's part of our file and you should um, take a look at it. And for what it's worth, you know, here, here it is. That's called a, a Brady issue, a Brady violation when they don't disclose it. So occasionally defense lawyers will get a letter, you know, they'll call it a Brady letter from the prosecution that says, hey, just so you know, this fact or this issue is present in this case. It, it may be important to you. Um, oftentimes those letters say that it doesn't mean that the prosecution is going to cease or go away, but it's just a matter of disclosure. So when that happens, the defense becomes aware of the issue. But the problem is when it doesn't happen and there is a exercise of discretion that is made by somebody usually it can be one person but it's usually a team of prosecution personnel that decide they're not going to disclose something and here's where this rule is basically lacking in uh, having any teeth or enforcement the the issue is potentially exculpatory and and what does that mean um and that's part of the problem is that there's uh, dispute about what it means. And the problem is that when it's in the possession of the prosecution and the prosecution only, the judge is not aware of this issue. The defense isn't aware of the existence of this evidence. And the prosecution's re requirement is twofold. One, they have to disclose things that they're going to use to try and convict the defendant. So things that they say, hey, we're going to present this at trial, this witness, this statement, this document. They have to provide advance notice of that because one very important right that a defendant has is to be put on notice of what the evidence is against him or her. So what happens is that there's something that isn't great for the prosecutor's case or might be a big problem in their case. And they're like, well, we're not going to use that. See what I'm saying? They're like, well, we're not going to use it, so we don't have to disclose it. Well, that's when the second category kicks in. And if it's quote-unquote, potentially exculpatory, then yes, they do have to provide it, but not for the same reasons. It's not an, it's a notice provision, but it's also just something that is supposed to be in balance, in fairness to the other side, that if this is something that you, this is something you may want to present as a defense, or you, this is potentially useful to you either as an investigatory aspect or actually at trial. 
So it's a constitutional requirement, but it emanates from the brain of the prosecutor. And it has to, if it doesn't happen, nobody knows. And in this case, good example of years later, very significant evidence that was known to the prosecution and somebody decided that, well, it doesn't help our case, so we're not going to disclose it. You know, and I, I get that answer a lot, actually, from prosecutors where we believe that some evidence exists and their answer is, well, we're even if it does exist, we're not going to use it, so you're not entitled to it. Hmm. Well, that's the prosecutor deciding on their own that it's not useful to the defense, which is kind of weird because the defense is saying, we believe it is useful, and it's just somebody disagreeing. So y you see how this can happen. Um, the prosecution says, well, this isn't good for our case, but we also don't believe it proves anybody innocent. It's just a snag in the case, so we're not going to disclose it. Well, guess what? That bad decision um, resulted in Syed's conviction being reversed. That's That was the straw that broke the camel's back. That, on top of everything else that's happened in the case, was the last straw. And it's just shocking that this went up on appeal. This guy sat in prison for over 20 years, and this was an issue that was out there all along and wasn't disclosed until very recently, even though it had been litigated in many courts and many, many hearings and a lot of taxpayer dollars spent on the case. Well, all right, that's all the time we have for this week. Have a great weekend, everybody. Tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5. WHBL, this has been Legal Defense.